Uh, today we are in the book of Galatians. We have started a series in Galatians, and we are continuing on in that. And uh, the title today is The Radical Grace of God, or The Radical Gospel of Grace. And we, we actually preached part of, or this text was part of the text last week that we preached in. Um, but I wanted to make sure we went back over it and looked at it because it's a real powerful testimony of Paul, and that's what we're going to see today. Thanks, buddy. Um, and so I, I want us just to go back and look at Paul's testimony. He's giving his testimony so that we would understand God's grace and how he has been saved and how there is no boasting in man in our salvation. So that's kind of the purpose of the testimony. So we're going to be in Galatians 1, verse 13, so you can go ahead and have your Bibles there. Um, Back in 1606, 80 islands in the South Pacific were discovered. In 1773, the islands were explored by Captain James Cook, and they were named the New Hebrides because they were like the Hebride Islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. The chain is about 450 miles long. And if you kind of draw a line from Honolulu uh, to Sydney, Australia, you'll go right through the capital of the islands, which is Vanuatu. Uh, Today, the the population is about 215,000 in all of the islands. Now, uh, John Williams and John Harris, uh, they went there as missionaries back in 1839. And within minutes of landing on the island, they were killed and eaten uh, by the natives who were on the island. In 1842, a few years later, a team of missionaries arrived and were driven away within a few months. John Patton, at age 33 on November 5th, went with his wife. They left Scotland to go to the island of Tanna. Now, John Patton, before he left, uh, he led a very fruitful ministry in Glasgow. He worked with those of lower income. He shared the gospel with them. He helped supply for their physical needs. And in many ways, his ministry was extremely successful. Uh, when you were looking at ministries and the impact that it was having, the people that were being drawn in, he was incredibly successful. In fact, so successful that many others, actually Christians, uh, sought to discourage him from even leaving this ministry and going to these islands but he was determined now there was one man who thought he was more determined than john was and he tried to convince uh, john Patton not to go and this is how john respond responded to him the man's name was mr dixon he said mr dixon you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms i confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will raise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so with that, he took his wife and they left in November. And on March, he buried his wife and his newborn son because of fever. He remains there. For another four years in constant danger the entire time until he's finally driven away from the island by the natives. He then marries again in 1864 and uh, returns to the island of Anawa on 1866 with his new wife. This is how he describes the people. The native people were cannibals and occasionally ate the flesh of their defeated foes. 
They practice infant, infant, I always stumble on this word, infanticide and widow sacrifice, killing the widows of deceased men so they would serve their husbands in the next world. So that is the people that he goes to see. So the next 15 years, John Patton is on the island building orphanage, loving the people there, uh, learning the language, actually creating a written language. And the end of his ministry, the entire island has come to faith in Christ. Um, he left certainty for uncertainty. He left a place where he was extremely successful to go to a place where he could very possibly do nothing other than fail. And so kind of the question is, what causes a man to leave all that he has to risk his family, to bury his family, to remain on the island? What what causes a man to go do that? What causes a man to leave a successful ministry where he's respected by people to go live with the people who want to kill him? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're looking at the gospel of grace. Not just the gospel of grace, but it's the radical gospel of grace. And and just on a qualifier, we might call it the radical gospel of grace, but to God it's grace. It's normal for God to save people and be gracious. That is his normal character. So as astounded, as in awe as we might be as we read about God's grace, and as much as we want to say it's amazing grace, it's radical grace, it is actually normal grace for God. So just putting that in perspective, what's radical for us is very normal for God. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at this grace. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We stand as we read God's word here. We do so as a means of honoring God because we believe that his word is inerrant and infallible and it comes with his full and absolute authority. Chapter 1 verse 13. This is Paul's testimony. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism and how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Let's pray. Father, God, give us eyes to see Your grace today. Lord, I pray that as we open Your Word, Your Spirit would work powerfully in our hearts. For those of us who are here and have been Christians for a long time, and what we might say is we are very familiar with your grace, God, may we be in awe of your grace today. May we see it in new light. May we be humbled by your grace. May we fall more in love with your grace today. And God, if there is anyone here who does not know you, who has not tasted your grace, who has not experienced Experience the goodness of your grace in Jesus Christ. I pray that through your word and the power of your spirit, you would awaken them today and give them life. God, encourage us today by your word. Convict us today by your word. Draw us close to you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, If you have questions during the sermon, uh, feel free to text those in. 
we should have time afterwards to, to answer a few of your questions. So we're going to start. It's really two sections, life outside of Christ and life in Christ. That's kind of the two sections that we have. 13 and 14 are before Christ, outside of Christ, versus 15 and 16 is really how Paul came to know Christ, the salvation story. So we're going to start with a description of Paul, and that's verses 13 through 14. What we see is Paul hates the church. He hates the church. He is extremely... um, Violent towards the church, and the word violent means extremely more than necessary. Uh, The word, the idea that Paul is getting across is that he is a savage and that he brutally attacked Christians. In Acts, we read that he arrested men, women, and children. He was like a bull with red in his eyes. He did not want to just hurt Christianity. He did not just want to cripple Christianity. He wanted to destroy it and to bury every last Christian. And there was no one more zealous than Paul. If you look at the end of verse 14, so, or actually before that, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He is far excelling everyone else. Keep reading. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. There was no one more zealous than Paul. He believed in Judaism. He believed in demonstrating his faith and proving his faith through his zealousness of keeping the law and attacking Christians. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul, he looks back on his unsaved life and he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And the point is, there is no arguing Paul into heaven. He hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus. He wants nothing to do. He will not be reasoned with. He's that one person. If you bring up Jesus, he will begin railing on you on how dumb and stupid you are for holding to such pathetic beliefs in a crucified Savior. Many of you you probably know people like that. You might have experienced those kind of conversations. Paul's heart is like granite. It is impenetrable to Christianity. Not even a wrecking ball can dent his determination to persecute the church and put an end to the faith in Jesus Christ. He is like Hitler. He is like Stalin. He is like Kim Jong-un of North Korea. This is Paul. This is how he wants us to see him. And what we have here is a picture, really, of his spiritual condition. And what's amazing, and what we might not always understand, is that this is our condition also. This is how the Bible describes you and me. Now, you might kind of say, I'm not like Paul. And outwardly, we might not be like Paul. We might not have been so violent Possibly you were raised within church and you were morally good. Paul was probably very morally good also in many ways. But inside we have the same heart condition. And so what I want to do is do a little description of humanity. Um, And I want to read just a few verses here. And I put these verses up on the screen. Um, I just want you to think about what God is communicating in His Word about our spiritual condition apart from Christ. So just think through these texts. First one we have, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God in the flesh. That is our spiritual condition. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's you and me. That's how it describes us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here's the point. We are rebellious. We are born determined to hate Christ. We are born resistant to the grace of God. No one can be argued into heaven. If salvation is up to you and me, we're without hope. If salvation is tied to your ability to convince people of the gospel, then we have no greater chance of saving people than we do of walking down to the cemetery down the street and calling for people to come out of their coffins. We have no greater chance. We can yank and pull and we can drag people into the church to hear the gospel, but we have absolutely zero power to save them. That's the point that Paul is bringing up. The the flow of the text in Galatians, he's proving to the, the Judaizers and to the church he is writing to, He is not trying to please man. The gospel of Christ is not about pleasing man. It's about glorifying God. He's not preaching an easy believism gospel. One that says just believe, it's easy. The gospel is preached to people who cannot be saved by themselves. So if we have no ability to save ourselves, then what hope do we have? How was it that Paul is saved? How is it that John Patton, he goes to an island full of cannibals, people who want nothing to do with God, and that through preaching the gospel 15 years later, the entire island is saved? Well, if you remember back earlier in Galatians 1.4, if you just kind of glance up on the text, what we have actually began in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's the gospel. That's what we're looking at. Jesus came to deliver us because we can't deliver ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Jesus came to save. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this grace, this salvation that comes to us in Jesus. And so what we're going to read is Paul's salvation story. And what we're going to have is is while the situation, the outward physical circumstances may be different for you and me, the same inward spiritual salvation that took place for Paul is the same salvation that you and I experience also. Salvation is the same for every person, although the circumstances may differ. And we'll look at that as we go. 
And so we're going to first look at the description of salvation. And as we look at this, notice in verses 13 through 14 the change in pronouns that occur between those verses and verses 15 and 16. Paul primarily speaks of I in 13 and 14. If you look at that. The former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church, I was advancing in Judaism, I was extremely zealous for traditions of my fathers, everything is about him. But as we switch now, he wants us to go from his perspective to God's perspective on his salvation. And so now the predominant pronoun is he and his. So now we're looking at how God saves. And so that's why this is universal. This is how he saves you, this is how he saves me, this is how he saved Paul. And the number one, uh, first we're going to begin, we see that grace chooses. We have verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. The word set apart means to mark. Paul is saying, before I was born, I was marked by God. He says a very similar thing in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. And there are a lot of texts references in your bulletin i have most of them up on the screen so that way you can see them but they're in your bulletin i want to encourage you to go back through the texts that are in your bulletin today and read through them and pray through them later just soak in the truth that is there but in chapter 1 verse 4 of ephesians this is what we read even as he this is god chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in love god's plan of salvation reaches back before creation again he wants us to see the depths of grace we saw the depths of sin it's fully corrupting us now when we look at the depths of grace it goes beyond creation into the eternal mind of god and god has chosen those whom he will save Now, to some, that sounds strange. But omniscience and sovereignty of God, as it's written in Scripture, is not meant to frighten us, but to comfort us. And I'll just give one proof of that. Many of you know Psalm 139. This is a text many of us love. We love reading this text. But notice what it tells us about God and His sovereignty. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Slide's not wanting to change. Brian, help me. Doesn't, there it goes. My phone hates me now. Your eyes, this is God, your eyes saw my unformed substance In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here we have God's sovereignty, His omniscience, and it's meant to comfort us. So I get that there's questions that raise when we begin talking about these things. But what we're to understand, especially here in Galatians, that there is nothing that God does not know. He knows us before we were born. He planned out our days and he's determined in the depths of time who will be saved let me give another text i think maybe okay there we go jeremiah 1 5 jeremiah is a prophet in the old testament this is how he came uh this is how he's been formed and called to be a prophet notice the role of god before i formed you in the womb i knew you 
Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you aside. I marked you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. When did this happen? Before he was born. Before he was even made in the womb. God, in creation, before creation and past eternity, knew him. Look at um, 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. This is the point. Salvation is not by you and me. It has nothing to do with our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Now, when does God's grace come to us, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began? This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, where he says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. In Him, in Christ, grace has already been given to those who will be called. Paul says we've been shown grace in Christ before the ages began. Again, I know these texts raise questions, but the purpose of them is to draw our eyes to the majesty of the God who saves because we have a God unlike man. We have a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing. He's the creator of all things. He is the one who saves, and he marks us. He marks us before we were born before we've done any good work so that you and I, we have nothing to boast about. We can say that there was nothing in me, there was nothing that I have done that merited my salvation, but it solely comes from the grace of God. Next, we see grace calls. We began in verse 15, but when He would set me apart before I was born, and who called me, by His grace. So what we have, God setting apart those whom He sets apart. He calls. The word calls means to summon. So this summoning is not like a king uh, who, who wants to summon someone in his kingdom to come before him, so he sends his soldiers to bring them, or maybe it's someone who doesn't want to come before the king, and so he sends his soldiers, and people, they trap him, they arrest him, and they force him to come. That's not what this is. This isn't a summoning that's dragging us before him, nor is this like a summons when one of my kids goes to one of my other kids and says, you better come to dad. He's calling you and you're in trouble. At that moment, my kids are not like, great! I love my dad. I want to go see him. And they frolic and run off to come see me. That's not what they do at that moment. You know how people like drag their feet? Like they drag their feet very a great deal. It's like there's weights on their feet. They move very slowly because they have no desire to come before me at that moment. That's not what's happening here. This is not a summons like this. To be called by God is to be made new. We've gone from rebelliousness. We've gone from blindness. We've gone from death. We've gone to life. We've gone to be given sight. We've gone to be given a new heart with a new mind that new now desires God. We now long to run to God, to please God, to obey Him, to worship Him, to love Him. We've been turned inside out. The things that we hated, namely God, Christ, serving Him, now we love those things because we've been made new and the Spirit of God is in us. When God calls us, we go from death to life. When God spoke creation into existence, He spoke it out of nothing. 
And when he speaks life into you, into me, into the void, into the darkness and blackness of our hearts, he speaks life out of nothing and places his spirit inside of us that we'd be made new, regenerated. That's what we read in Titus 3, 5, that we've been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we have eyes that love God. And now when we hear that call, we run we run and we delight as children who, who come to a playground and run to the swing set and run to the monkey bars because we are full of joy at that moment. He speaks life into our dead hearts. Wrecking balls cannot dent our heart, but God's grace melts it and makes it new. It's the power of His grace. And notice how Paul in Ephesians 2.5, this is what he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So that's our spiritual state. We're dead, made alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. So our spiritual condition is death, meaning we don't want God. We cannot even understand the things of God. But when His grace comes upon us and enlightens our eyes, we see Him are made alive and made new. It's the grace of God that saved Paul. And it's the grace of God that saves you and me. Now this salvation that comes to us looks different in every person. Just as um, every snowflake is unique, so is every salvation. I I, want to read, or I'm going to roughly quote, Stephen Smallman. (laughs) What a great last name, Smallman. Now, if you're here, aren't you glad, Ben and I talked about this earlier today. I said, Ben, aren't you glad your last name's not Smallman? There's just not a lot of confidence in that name. But anyway, so he wrote good things, though. So you can have a strange name and write really good things. He said, the new birth we experience in Jesus is like the whole gestation process of a pregnancy. The labor pains of some people are long and pronounced, possibly lasting for years. For, you know, those people who, it takes a long time for them to come to know Christ. They're wrestling with it. They're fighting with it. You know, some of you might be those mothers who your labor went for, you know, the full extent before they say, okay, now we're going to induce you. Um, some of you experience those long labor pains. But others, the gestation is period is very short. You show up at the hospital and the baby just kind of comes out right away. And some people is like that. They hear the gospel of grace and they just are saved. That's kind of what happened to Paul. Which is strange because of how hard and resistant he was. But he's on the road to Damascus ready to kill Christians, arrest them and persecute them. The grace of God comes upon him and that moment he is radically changed. So some of you, that is your story. Some of you, it took a long period of time. Some of you can easily look back in your life and say, on this day I was saved. It was radical. Paul could probably do that. Some of you can do that. Others of you, you look back on your life and you're like, I don't know. I was probably like between this age and this age. Because it was slow and it was gradual. And God was wooing you towards Him. And the salvation just took place in a different way. But in the same sense, when God calls you and His Spirit comes upon you, you go from death to life. So there is a point But because some of you, uh, or some of the way the process is, it was very, very gradual. So when you look back and you say, look, I know I was 7, 8, 9, or 10. It was in that time frame. I know I was somewhere between 20 and 25. I know that all of a sudden there was one day and I just knew that I loved Jesus. And that's what happens in many of us. John Patton said this. After he reflected 
on his years on the mission field, he said, Truly, there is only one way of regeneration, being born again by the power of the Spirit of God, the new heart. But there are many ways of conversion, of outwardly turning to the Lord, of taking the actual first step that shows on whose side we are. Regeneration is the sole work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart and soul and is in every case one and the same. Conversion, on the other hand, bringing into play the action also of the human will is never absolutely the same. Perhaps in even two souls, as like and yet as different as are the faces of men. So the whole point is, We're all saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. We all go from death to life by the grace of God coming upon us, breathing life into us, but it's going to look different for all of us. So let's just step back, make sure we know where we are. All whom God calls are saved and experience new life. That's what we see. Some come quickly, some come slowly, but they all come. Now, it's this truth that gives us confidence to share the gospel. It's this truth, because what we understand is you and I are not responsible to save others. That's God's job, and that's a good thing. We don't have any pressure to save others. What we are called to do is simply share the gospel. And We need not lose hope or be discouraged when some people are very resistant or seem very, um, or, or even violent towards the gospel, because we know some come slow, some come quickly. But all whom God calls will come. It's what comforts us. It's this truth that has caused men and women for centuries to leave their comfortable homes, their lives, to go share the gospel in other parts of the world. It's the truth that God saves. It's not the truth that you save, therefore suck it up, leave wherever you are, and good luck. Hope you do a good job. It all depends on how persuasive you are. That's not the gospel. But rather, the gospel is, let us go in obedience to wherever God calls us, being faithful to share the gospel, knowing that God saves. It is God's radical grace that melts the hearts. It's this truth that frees us to share the gospel with our professing atheist friends, knowing that God can change their hearts. You are not called to be the transforming person in their life. You are called to simply share the gospel. To let what God is doing in you to shine out that others would see what a transformed life begins to look like. And as you begin to share the gospel, they will hear and at all times trusting that God is the one who saves. It's this truth that gives us great confidence that as we share the gospel, there will be people saved. It's this truth that when Paul goes to the uh, to Corinthians or to Corinth, and Paul says, or God says to Paul, there are people who will be saved. Paul doesn't say, "Great, I'm out of here." He says, "Good," and he stays there for eighteen months preaching the gospel so that those whom God has called would be saved. It's this truth that comforts us when we mess up. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone? And you know you failed? Have you ever known you just said something dumb? And you like walk away and you're like, man, like I've I've wrecked this person for life now. Like there's no way he'll ever come to Christ. Or, Or you're sitting there and you play the game, I should have said this. And you're like, they said, how can I believe in Jesus Christ? Why didn't I just say, have faith? Why didn't I just walk him through scripture? Why did I make it so complicated? Why did I... 
you know, jumble it all up. Have you ever done that? It's this truth that comforts us at this moment because you're not called to save people. We're called to do a good job. We want to do it well. It doesn't mean we just aimlessly just shout things out saying, well, God will fix it. But that we know that as we share the gospel, God will use, God perfectly uses our imperfect means or our imperfect methods of saving people. That's our God. He is faithful to His Word and He loves to pour out His grace on others. Know this, that there is no one who can resist the call of God's grace. That's the point of Paul's testimony. That's the point. He's saying, I didn't want Jesus. I was running the other way. I was running so fast. I was trying to kill followers of Christ. But when grace came, I was saved. We all know those people who appear to be running. You probably have them in your life. You mention the word Jesus, gospel, church, something along that, and it's like someone on a starting line fired the gun and they're sprinting off away from you. You have those people? And you're like, man, how, how do I save them? If salvation was left to us, there would be no hope. But because of this radical grace that we have in the gospel, we can confidently pursue them, pray for them, and love them, knowing that God saves. It's God who saves. So whoever you're looking at in your life right now, however discouraged you might be, don't be discouraged. God's the one who saves. That's not your role to save them. Don't put that burden on you. Your job is to simply be faithful. And that's what the Spirit is working in you to do that you would simply share the gospel with them. It's this radical grace that saved Paul when he was bent on not being saved. It's this radical grace that propelled John Patton to leave Glasgow to go to live with cannibals. It's this grace that sustained him when his, mother, when his wife and his newborn child died that he would stay there preaching the gospel. And it's grace that compelled him after he's ran off from the island to return with a new wife, potential martyr, to go back to the island of Anawa to persevere there for 15 years, not knowing what God is going to do, but then enjoying the fruits of the labor, which not every missionary gets to do, and to see the entire island come to know Christ. That's the grace of God. We also see grace delights. Look at verse 16. Was pleased to reveal His Son to me. God loved saving Paul. The one who hated him. The one who persecuted him. The one who wanted nothing to do with him. God says, it brings me great joy, great delight to pour my grace upon him that he would be saved. Just as we don't come kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, neither does God kick and scream as he saves us. God's not sitting there saying, Paul, unfortunately, he did A and B, so now I have to do C. God's not hating that he has to save him. Paul has not put God in a box where now God doesn't have a choice. He's saying, well, Paul did everything I required. Oh, I hate it, but I guess I'll save him, bring him into my kingdom. Maybe I'll just make him a lowly whatever off to the side. I won't really try to deal with him. No, God delights in saving him. And the reason is because it's grace. We don't earn salvation. 
Everything comes by the radical grace of God, and he delights in pouring it upon us. Know this, if you're saved here today, if you're saved, God delights in your salvation. He looks upon you with great joy and says, I love pouring my grace out upon you. He loves that. If you're here today and you've been wondering, what about this Christianity? Do I really want to believe? No, that as you trust in God, God delights in saving you. He loves pouring his grace out upon you. And what's good news is his grace doesn't stop at salvation. Let me read Ephesians 2, 5, maybe. I mean, Ephesians 2, 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So here's the point. God saves us by grace. He awakens us to to, uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. And His grace continues to be poured out upon us every single day. When a million years of being with God has passed, His bucket of grace will not be any closer to running out than when He began. God's grace never ceases. Isn't that good news? That's our God. That's the God that we come here and we gather and we worship. And as we gather as a people of God who have access to God, we are a people who have access and experience His grace every single day, now and forever. And ever goes beyond this life into the new heavens and new earth. This is God's grace that He freely saves us out of His good pleasure. If you're here today, know that God delights in your salvation. He delights in your salvation. Last, grace purposes. Look at the end of verse 16. Or I guess it's the middle. In order. So the word in order tells us there's a purpose. There's a reason behind the salvation. That I might preach him among the Gentiles. God saved Paul so that he would go to the Gentiles. God raised up Jeremiah that he would preach to the gospel, preach the gospel to, to Israel and to the nations. That's what he's now doing with Paul, and that's what he's done with you and me. He saved us for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this is why you're saved. You're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everything about God has been planned in past of eternity. Not only the salvation, but the very good works that we do. The grace that saves you is the grace that's working in you right now that you'd be used by God. Listen, if you're here, you've been saved for, if you're here and you've been a believer in Jesus Christ, you're saved for a purpose. God didn't just randomly pick you. He's not saying, well, I'll just let him slide in. We'll see what he does. No, he saved you for a purpose. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Esther, Job, Ruth, Boaz, Solomon, Paul, Peter, John, Andrew, James, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, Priscilla, Aquila. All of these people that we easily come across in Scripture, all called by God for a purpose. And we are no different. You're called for a purpose. It's all by the grace of God. Now you might feel unqualified or insufficient. And that's usually a good, that is a good thing. Because we are not sufficient in ourself. But it's the grace that makes us sufficient. 
The grace of God that was sufficient to bring you from death to life is the grace that's sufficient to use you every single day of your life. Because of God's grace, Paul, who once hated Gentiles, is now devoted to sharing the gospel with them. Now think about that. Just play that conversation in your head. Paul is a zealous Jew. Forever he's hated Gentiles. Hated Gentiles. And now God says, I want you to go to the Gentiles. What would you say? That's not a good idea, Paul. These people know I hate them. I have no rapport with them. I'm going to come to them. They're going to run from me. They're going to hate me. They're going to want to kill me. It's not good. Why don't you use a Gentile? Like, save one of them. Don't use me. And God says something along the lines, my grace is sufficient. I will use you. My grace will go before you. And it will change their hearts and make them alive. And I will give, them, uh, give you favor before them so that they will, you will, they will hear the gospel from you and that they will be saved. Some kind of conversation probably happened like that. Listen to what John Patton says. This is, this is what he says. He's on the island. He's been attacked for a long period of time. This is what he says. This is when one night when he's been surrounded by raging natives who have acted as though they want to kill him. He says, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ who is all power in heaven on in earth. You right now, if you've believed in the grace of God, you share in the very divine nature of God. That's what we read in the book of Peter. You are a missionary and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are, in the words of John Patton, immortal until God calls you home. Do you know that? He's called you for a purpose. He's determined, as determined as he was to save you, he's determined to use you for his purpose that others would see the gospel, that others would believe the gospel, that others would come to faith. It's not about you being sufficient. It's about the sufficiency of God's grace. You are simply called to demonstrate the love of Christ and share the good news of the grace of Christ, all the while trusting in the grace of Christ that he will do what we cannot do. So what does this mean? This means you might pack your bags like John Patton, and you might go to... Um, another people group in some other part of the world. It might mean you're a father and a husband and you're regularly shepherding your family on how to love God. It might mean you're a single mom working, relying upon God's grace to take care of your family and show your children the joy that you have in God. It might mean you're retired and able to volunteer in the neighborhood or here at the church regularly showing others the love of God. It might mean you take your coworkers to coffee, that you would share the gospel and begin doing a Bible study with them. It might mean you share the gospel at work, risking your job for the sake of another's salvation. It might mean you go to school boldly sharing the gospel and you get labeled as that Christian kid or whatever they're wanting to use. That's what they used kind of when I was growing up. You're the Christian kid. Yes, that was a good one. Thank you for calling me that. That was usually the best they had. I don't know what they use now. 
It might mean that you're a wife and mother showing the tender mercies of God to your children as you serve them and show them the beauty of submission to your husband. Bottom line, God has saved you by grace so that by grace you would be used by him. And most likely, you're not called in just one area. But if you're a husband, you're going to be called at home and somewhere else. If you're a mother, you're going to be called at home and somewhere else. It's usually not just one place, but there's multiple areas God is using you. Listen, our mission at Timberline, and it's really the mission of every church. If you come here, you'll know we're not very creative. We usually just kind of say things that the Bible says and, and, and maybe change a word or two for everyday language. But we're not creative. I'm not creative, and I'm... I think I've finally become okay with that. Um, but our mission is simply to make disciples who make disciples. That's what we read in Matthew 28. That's really the mission of every church. And listen, we can do this. This is not just a hopeful claim. This is not something that we just say, hey, we hope to do this, guys. This is what we're doing. This is what, when we take offerings, this is what the money goes to. As we, as we sing praises, this is what we're praising God. He's the God who saves us for the purpose of making disciples who make disciples so that we would live with Him forever. We can do this not because of how good we are, strong we are, rich we are, or persuasive we are. Because honestly, I don't know if we have any of those things. I don't know. I throw myself in there. I don't know that we do. But we are armed with the gospel of grace. And that is sufficient to save all who are called by grace. The gospel of grace can melt the most brazen of hearts and it can move the most resistant of wills. That's what we go out with. So as we leave... As we think about this, as we go forth, I want us to be prepared to share the gospel with our neighbors. I want you to think about that with your coworkers, with your family members. Let's be praying that we'd be willing to leave the comforts of our home at any moment to go share the gospel with any people group that God is calling us to. Let's be bold with the gospel. Let's be bold in sharing, not caring how they're going to respond Because we know what our God can do. And their response is not our responsibility. Let us never forget, we have a God who loves to reveal His radical grace and all who are called by our God are saved. Let's pray. Actually, as we pray, I want to remind, um, if you're a believer here, I do pray, go back over these texts and, and wrestle with them. Pray through them. Ask God to give you clarity and understanding of them. If you're an unbeliever, you might, you might be one of those who are in this long gestation period. You've been resisting the will of God for a long time. You've been resisting salvation. You've been saying, okay, but I keep coming up with another reason, another reason, another reason not to be saved. I want to remind you that our God loves to save. And he loves to pour his grace upon you. And I want to encourage you that our God has sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. That by believing in him, you can be forgiven of all your sins. And that you can be adopted into his family and spend eternity with him. So if you have not yet believed in Christ, I pray that you would do that today. If you do that, I pray, come talk to me afterwards. I want to pray with you. I want to equip you. I want to make sure you have a Bible and whatever else it is that you need. Um, Let's pray. Father, We praise you that you save. We're in awe that you save. God, there is no one in this room. There's none of us who deserve salvation. There's none of us who merit any good work that you do. But yet, you love to give grace. 
You delighted in sending your son Jesus to the cross that we who believe in you would be saved and your son delighted in going to the cross to carry out your will that you would be glorified and we would be saved by grace. God, I pray, help us to know that. God, I pray that for those of us who are Christians, and maybe we have many of us who have been Christians for 5, 10, 15 plus years, and we are familiar with your grace, may your grace just prick us anew today. May we be reminded of the sweetness of your grace. May we be reminded of the goodness of your mercies, that we did not deserve your son, but that you have sent him that we would be saved. And may we be reminded that you saved us and you were determined to use us. And God, may we be used by you. May we be bold in sharing the gospel. May we know that we are ambassadors of Christ, that we are servants and missionaries of Christ, and that we are simply called to share the gospel and all the results are left up to you. God, again, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray save them today by your grace. Awaken their hearts. May we know you. May we love you. May they join us together in this body and this family that we would shout of your excellencies. Thank you, God, for your radical grace and what actually is your normal grace. In your name, Jesus, amen. Uh, first question, if Paul, Saul, killed Christians, why, why did God make him an apostle? That's a good question. Shouldn't that have disqualified him? Um, that's grace. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the grace of God. He, he turns those who hate him and, and changes them that they would love him. And that's the radical nature of God's grace. Um, is the fact that we are coming, that is the certification of our salvation, or do we have to have come in order to have salvation? If Jesus comes back while we are coming, are we saved? So do we actually need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved? Or do we need to pronounce that? Do we need to announce it? Do we need to come forward in some way? Or are all those who are going to be saved just saved regardless if they ever make maybe a conscious effort? Um, I think that's a little bit of what the question is asking. Um, we have to go from death to life. So um, when Peter preaches the gospel in Acts 2, uh, he doesn't then, after he preaches the gospel, say, and some of you are, are going to be saved, so good, and walks away. Um, but he says, in order to be saved, repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel, and you will be saved. And that's the message. All who profess Jesus Christ with their mouth will be saved. Now, does it mean they actually have to verbally profess? Does it mean they need to walk forward in a church setting or something like that? No. Again, that can all look different. Um, you might go from death to life and not have said a single word. God sees your heart and knows your heart. Um, but we all go from death to life. And we don't have to worry about like Jesus coming. And this person was wanting to be saved. Oh, Jesus came too fast. Because we have in John where God tells us, all who, or Jesus says, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me. We know that all whom are going to come, Jesus will bring. So before Jesus comes back, all whom will come will come. So we don't, don't, don't ever think that Christ will come and there'll be some of those who are running to the doors. And, oh, we wanted. We were just too slow. Um, that, that's not the case that we see in Scripture. Um, but we do see in Scripture that we're all called to respond to the gospel. So God's grace awakens us that we can respond. And that's kind of the, the human side also um, because we can't, that's part of the uniqueness. We're all going to respond differently because we're all different. Um, but we're all going to respond in one way or another. Uh, two other, or a couple other questions. 
I have a family member who I've been praying with for years. They don't seem to care about God at all. Am I supposed to just keep praying? So I think what they're saying, I think, um, like the word just keep saying, like, or just keep praying, is this really all that I can do? Do I do more? Um, let me encourage you. Prayer is the means in which God loves to accomplish his purposes. So yes, pray. And don't think that's just what you get to keep doing. But that is a very powerful way of trusting in God. Other ways are continually demonstrating the love of Christ to that person. Now, that looks different. And, and Peter, if you remember, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he actually tells uh, the wife who has an unbelieving husband that in her silence she will win him over. So it's not that we have to say the right amount of things. It's not that we have to be persuasive or badger. It's by being the good witness to them, by loving them, by sharing the gospel on a regular basis, by being in prayer for them that God will save. So please don't underestimate the power of prayer. But it's very, very powerful. Um, you have said God loves to save us. How come I struggle with feeling loved? Good question. God delights in saving us. Shouldn't we just be experiencing that delight all the time? Shouldn't we be on cloud nine? That would be amazing. Um, but no, we don't. I mean, we, we know that we still struggle with sin. Um, how come we still struggle? We struggle with sin. We still struggle with the temptations of sin. Um, what I would recommend is continuing being in the Word of God, reminding yourself of God's love. Because what you're going to feel is that God doesn't love you, but you want to fight that with the truth of God's Word that says, no, He does love me. So we strike down the lies with the truth of God's Word. That, that's how we do spiritual warfare. We always take the Word of God to combat the lies of Satan or sin or wherever they come from. Um, also, I'd encourage you to, to really be involved with other believers walk with other believers, be encouraged by other believers. Um, those are two things I, I would pray or I'd encourage you to do. Um, how is it good to risk the lives of your family to share the gospel with hostile people? Isn't that irresponsible? It's a, it's a good question. Um, like, why is it really good to like risk taking, like, should I with three kids go to um, uh, an, a Muslim majority country? Is that, would that be a good father? Would that be you know, responsible. Um, let me, I think the best way to respond to that one is, is the Bible. Actually, all of them would usually be the Bible. Um, but it brings to mind Luke 14. Uh, I encourage you to read this one. So this is, this is giving flesh to this text, Luke 20, 14, 25. Um, now great cow, great Great crowds accompanied him, accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, so this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Um, the point is, is that we, we please God more than our own safety, is that we want to honor God more than provide the comforts of our own homes. And I don't think there's... There's no better testimony to our children than living faithfully to God. And if he calls us to an unreached people group where it's hostile, what better way to show our children what it is to take up the cross and how powerful the gospel really is. Um, think about this. Stephen is the martyr in the, old, in the 
first martyr in the New Testament, what did that produce? From the martyring of Stephen, the gospel went forward to all nations. From the martyring of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, that whole group to the Aka Indians, their wives then go back, reach out to the group, uh, the believers, and all the Indians of the Aka Indians are saved. God regularly uses the blood of believers as the means of pushing the gospel farther than what it could normally go, that it would bring about a greater harvest than it could ever produce. Um, if the men that were killed, uh, that went before John Patton, the ones who were first eaten by cannibals, and then the ones who came back later who were driven off, they sowed the seeds of the gospel so that one day a man like John Patton would go, and while he might not have seen many people come on the island of Tana where he was driven off, but the island of Anawa, the entire island comes to know Christ. Uh, so I just want to encourage you, um, there's no better testimony to our children than being faithful to wherever it is that God calls us. Uh, so we're going to pray, and, and we're going to be dismissed. So good questions. Those are good questions today. Those are good. Uh, those are tough questions. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a mighty fortress, and that, God, you do save by your grace, that your grace melts our hearts. God, may we... May we love your grace. Help us to love your grace more and more and more every day. Help us to be in your word, reading about your grace, about your son, Jesus Christ, and how you have come to save us, that we would love to share your grace with others. God, make us bold as we go out of this room today. May we be willing to go wherever it is that you have called us. May we share the gospel to whomever you call us, not caring how they respond, but only that we are faithful knowing that, God, you produce the results. God, we love you and we thank you for grace. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.